Our scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 13. Last week we read and looked at verses 1 through 10. We'll read those again and then continue to the end of the chapter. Revelation 13, 1 through 18. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon. For he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to other blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth worshipped it. Everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he will be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. We have before the message, we always have a prayer for healing and blessing that the Lord will teach us during the message this morning. 
and to lead us in this prayer. Brian, I've asked Brian to come and lead us in this prayer this morning. Brian. It is so good to see you all. Uh, it has been a while. We have been very blessed to have the cards and the text messages of prayers for us. We're very grateful. Uh, we do have the house on the market, and it's already got a contract on it, so we're ready to we're ready to get up here. So thank you for there's not many people who get that double blessing of being able to come back and minister to the same people and that you love and that love you back. So thank you for trusting us with that. And Karen gets to see her grandson, so that's good. Um, time of prayer. Uh, is a time to pray and taking all of our needs, all of our desires, all of our hurts, all of our joys before the Lord our God. And we not only do we pray for those physical needs, we pray for the spiritual. We pray that the Lord would strengthen us and strengthen the one who preaches. We have prayed with many of you before surgeries that God would direct the hands of surgeons and protect you from infection. We're going to pray for some who are physically ill some who are suffering. But we also pray for the one who preaches, that the Lord would uphold and strengthen him. You've heard John say it a billion times, and I've heard it too, where he says, I can't preach like that to change a man's heart or change a woman's heart. And that's true. But the one who wields him as his tool can, and we pray that he will. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessing of coming before you and calling you by that address. Father, all that that entails, that you do adore your children, you provide for them, you, you shelter them, you strengthen them, you discipline us. Thank you for that disciplining hand. Thank you for your sanctifying work, O Holy Spirit of God. We thank you for the application of our Savior's sacrifice to us. We pray now that we would know more of that sanctifying work, O Holy Spirit. As painful as it is sometimes, we pray for it. Pray, Father, for those who are suffering. We remember specifically our father in the faith, Dr. John Cruz. Father, we thank you for the testimony of strengthening that has occurred in these last couple of weeks. Pray for him. Pray that he would know your presence. Pray that he would know your great and marvelous joy. Father, we also know that Kaki needs your strength as well, and we ask that you would give it to her. Pray, Father, for Kate Morrison ask that the treatments that she receives would be effective for her body. Pray for John. As he cares for her, we ask that you would bless him to know that he does in doing that image to us the marvelous, marvelous pleasure of our bridegroom caring for his church, his bride. Now, Father, we pray for the one who will preach. We ask that you would wield him as your scalpel, that you, Holy Spirit of God, would give him the freedom of his calling, 
that you would carry him along. We ask that you would do that surgical work on us through your word, by your spirit. And in the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. How are we to recognize an antichrist? What do we know? What do we know about the beast of Revelation 13, the antichrist that's in the first letter of John, or the lawless one that's in the second letter to the Thessalonians? What do we know? We know that the beast, the antichrist, And the lawless one are different terms to describe the same individuals. We know that their existence was talked about by the apostles. We pass over this and we need to pay attention to it. That the apostles talked about this. They taught this in the early church. Look at 1 John 2, 18. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. But how does the verse start? As you have heard. I'm not telling you anything new. That's what John is saying in his letter. If they had heard the antichrist was coming, then it had to be taught to them by the apostles. This was talked about in the early church. Paul talked about the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 3 through 5. We've seen this. Look at it. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, the second coming, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. For the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. And then he says this. Listen to it. Do you not remember That when I was still with you, I told you these things. Paul reminded the Thessalonians that even though he was with them for only three weeks on that second missionary journey, he still spoke to them about the Antichrist. This is not a new subject that is just taken up in Revelation 13. Now there are those who focus on the Antichrist, who is to appear, who the Bible says will appear just before Jesus returns. There's people that are just possessed by that. That's all they can talk about. And there are those who seem to shy away from the consummate Antichrist that will come, and they focus on the fact that Scripture teaches that the spirit of the Antichrist is in every age, that there are many, as John said, many antichrists. Folks, learn this once and for all. What do we know? It is not an either or. It's both. The Bible clearly teaches there are types of antichrist, satanic individuals in every age. But there's one last Antichrist who seems to be a consummate Antichrist 
appearing just before Jesus returns. Those truths we know. Our text this morning tells us that as the people of God, we will recognize. Did you know that? That's taught in this text. We will recognize the Antichrist, whether it's the Antichrist, one of the many that come before the end, or whether the one that comes just right at the end. We'll recognize those figures. They have common characteristics. We'll see that in a moment. But look at verse 8. And all who dwell on earth, he's talking about the beast, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. That verse says that the people of God will not worship the Antichrist. Why? They will recognize him. They will recognize who he is. They will not be deceived. So the question becomes then, how will we recognize these Antichrists? Before we take up that question, we need to finish chapter 13. We ended with verse 10 last week. So, but the chapter keeps going. How did John complete this chapter dealing with the Antichrist? The vision John was seeing did not end with that great beast rising out of the sea of nations and wrecking havoc. It didn't stop there. The story of the Antichrist is not done yet in chapter 13. Look at this. Another beast associated with the first beast shows up on the scene. Look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Now this beast, note, it does not come from the sea, but from the earth. Remember the, the first beast came up out of the sea, the sea of nations. What does this signify, one from the sea and the other from the earth? It's right before us in these two chapters focused on Satan and the beast. Go back to chapter 12, verse 12. It's on your scripture sheet. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. He mentions both. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. This shows that, that one comes from the sea and one from the earth shows a complete worldwide dominance through the earth, through the nations, the first beast, the great, the greater beast came from the sea. The second beast came from the earth, signifying, simply signifying its domination on the earth. The second beast only had two horns instead of ten like the first beast. And those horns were like lambs. They weren't even big horns. They were like lamb's horns. But notice how he spoke. He spoke like a dragon. His words were their full will or fit were filled with the will and persuasion of Satan. The first and most powerful beast. He focused, we saw this last week, on establishing worldwide rule. The second beast focuses on bringing the earth to worship the first beast. The focus of the second beast is on the miraculous recovery of the first beast from this mortal wound. We talked about that last week. 
And that's his focus. Look at this miracle. He was supposed to die. It was a mortal wound. And he was healed. As the first beast represents the rule of government, the second beast is in charge of the worship of the Antichrist. He seems to be primarily a religious figure. His religion builds an image of the first beast and calls upon the earth to worship that image. Now, what do you think about it? I hope, I hope some of you say, I know where that comes from. Back in the third chapter of Daniel, remember? Nebuchadnezzar orders a huge statue to be built out in the plains. And he gets everybody that was anybody in all of Babylon and says, you've got to bow down to that statue. That's where this is coming from. Nebuchadnezzar was a type of Antichrist. He said, we worship me, or if you don't, you'll be thrown in the fiery furnace. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That's their story. Read it. This is modeled after that. The second beast causes a mark to be put on those following the beast. Now, everyone always wants to know. Perhaps you're here this morning. I'm finally going to find out what the mark is. Well, he tells us in verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Okay. In the Greek alphabet, it's not like our alphabet. The Greek alphabet served a dual purpose. We have A, B, C, D, and then we have the digits, the numbers over here. In Greek, the numbers and the letters go together. Their A, alpha, is also the number one. Beta, or B, is number two, and so on through the alphabet. Well, six, we read right here, six is the number of man. Three sixes, what's that? That's the perfection. Remember, that's what three is. Three is the perfection of man. And that's what Satan wants to, wants to attain. This is humanity at its best. This is the man of all men, the man of all humanity. But there's another message here. The number for Jesus is 888, which is the number of perfection, 7 plus 1. I would not focus on what the mark is exactly. We'll talk more about it in a little bit. The vision is telling us at this point, it's telling John that the Antichrist will fall short. He's not God. He's not Christ. Jesus is greater. Satan's whole effort was to counterfeit the incarnation, to counterfeit the crucifixion and resurrection, the mortal wound from which he was healed. Here he's trying to counter the mark that's on all Christians. What is the mark of a Christian? What's the mark on you? It's baptism. Whatever the mark is in Satan's world, 
It is the symbol of satanic, of a satanic baptism. That's all it is. I'm with Satan. That's what it says. It's a corollary. It's, it's a counterfeit baptism. Now, the second beast is the master of deceit. He's the preacher. He's the persuader. He seems to be evil's version of the Holy Spirit, the unholy spirit in this case. As the Holy Spirit came after the ascension and focused on Christ, focused on the person and work of Christ, didn't shine the light on himself, he shone the light on Christ. So the second beast comes and is totally focused on the worship of the first beast. That's what it's about. Thus, it's a copy of the Trinity. It's an unholy Trinity. Satan, the dragon, the Antichrist, the first beast, and the spirit of the Antichrist, the second beast. So we have a counterfeit incarnation, a counterfeit death, a counterfeit resurrection, and a counterfeit Trinity. All right, that brings us to the end of the chapter, okay? So how, have you ever thought this, how do you recognize the Antichrist? Have you ever been so mad at someone, so furious at someone? It's the Antichrist. You know, down through the ages, the Christian church has sometimes looked and said, there's an Antichrist. And they were right. Because he met, or she met, those characteristics. So let's look very quickly at what we see in this chapter. The Antichrist is marked as a governmental ruler. Look at verse 1. He had ten horns. I mean, he could have had a hundred. The point is that he was powerful. It was an effort to be omnipotent, all-powerful. And each horn, what? Had a crown ruled. Look at verse 7. And all authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Now, in every age, we have seen satanic leaders. Now, I've talked about this just to bring it home to our age. In the 20th century, they were Hitler, Lenin, Stalin in Russia, Mao in China. And that's, we, we could keep on naming, but those are sufficient. In the first century, John would have sodded Caligula, Nero, Domitian, they all have in common that they were rulers of governments. I believe Jesus is disclosing to John and to us that governmental tyranny will be the mark of the Antichrist, whether it's in the first century, the 21st century, or the, the mark of the Antichrist that comes just before Jesus returns. They will rule in different places scattered throughout the world, but at the end, there will be an Antichrist that will be allowed worldwide rule. We must take note. This really came home to me this week. That as bad as Caligula and Nero, Domitian were, by the time we get to the 20th century, it's, it's just exploded. You must take note that it, that it was the civilized 20th century that saw the satanic cruelty of Hitler and Lenin and Stalin and Mao. 
that dominated continents and slaughtered over a hundred million people. Jesus said in Revelation, the Antichrist would characteristically be rulers of governments. Now, are all governmental rulers Antichrist? No, they're not. If I don't put this disclaimer on it, Joe will leave this morning and he'll say, See, Alice, I told you, all politicians are evil. They're not. When we see the Antichrist, we can be thankful for the good ones, for the good leaders. The Antichrist is marked, however, as a tyrannical governmental ruler. Secondly, the Antichrist will be marked by blasphemy. Look at verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems, ten crowns on its horns, and the blasphemous names on its head, and its very being is blasphemous. Now skip down to verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened the mouth to utter, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. <clears throat> now, what's the definition of blasphemy? Blasphemy is demonstrating a lack of reverence for God. Instead of showing reverence, blasphemy is showing contempt for God. Blasphemy is mocking God, laughing at God, scorning God and his word. Now remember that definition. Just remember it. Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Germany, Russia, and China demonstrated their blasphemy in eradicating any evidence of God. They denied his existence, mocked his word, removed his word from the land, burned the Bibles, removed the churches, removed the preachers, removed the missionaries. And they did this by tyranny, by force, by persecution, by killing. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, was declared in those places and times to be an outlaw by those governments. That's blasphemy. Now, here's something sober. We can say, I'm glad I'm not in North Korea. I'm glad I'm not in China. I'm glad I'm not in Russia during that whole communist revolution. It's sobering when you realize that our culture has been zealous for the last 70 years Zealous to marginalize God, to marginalize his word, to marginalize his truth. Just as those cultures that we just mentioned were infamous for blaspheming God, in large part, our culture is growing in this same characteristic. Our culture mocks God, mocks his word, mocks his law, mocks a biblical world and life view. You know this. Just go to the university with your world and life view. Go there with this message this morning. You want to hear laughter from the university to the arts to the media to Wall Street to Washington? This is not an apathetic, it's not an apathetic blasphemy. 
It is a hostile blaspheming in our culture. And it has been done voluntarily in our culture without threat of bodily harm, without threat of prison or death. I would submit to you this morning as we look at this, I would submit to you that our culture and institutions are constantly blaspheming. This is interesting. In 1950, the Gallup poll asked this question. Were you raised without religious training? In your childhood, were you raised without religious training? That question was asked in 1950. Do you know what the number was? 6% of the population said we were raised without any religious training. Now, that same question, that same poll was asked again by Gallup in 1989. The same question. Were you raised without religious training? In 1989, 38% of the people answered that they were raised with no religious training. People, that's an earthquake culturally. When you go from 6% to 38%, and that was 30 years ago. It's nowhere near 38% today. It's a much larger number than that. If I'm speaking on a cultural, if I'm speaking outside the church, if I'm speaking in a cultural venue as a minister, I assume when I'm speaking, especially if people are under 40 years old, I assume that they know nothing about the Bible. Nothing about Jesus. If I say to them, Jesus died for your sins, they don't know who Jesus is and they certainly don't know what sin is. In fact, sin is just some, something you laugh at. You can't be serious. You, you want to hear the world laugh? Go tell them that casual sex is a sin. Go tell them that. The Antichrist is marked as a governmental leader. The Antichrist will be marked by blasphemy. The mark of blasphemy is all over our culture. It says something. We better listen to this because that's where we're headed. Thirdly, the Antichrist is marked by a demand for absolute allegiance and obedience. Look at verse 16. Also, it calls us all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has a mark. The mark of the beast causes the earth to exile the followers of Christ. If you're under an antichrist, whether it's in Russia or China or North Korea, you're going to be put in some kind of exile from the main part of the culture. Rome criminalized Christians. In Nazi Germany, who had the privileges, members of the Nazi party. Hitler's disciples were allowed education and business licenses and places of honor. What about Marxist Russia and China? Marxist Russia and China. Only the communist party members. Baptized members of a satanic faith. They're the ones that receive the good housing, the work, and the education, the military positions, and so on. There's a question we asked last week, and I come back to it this morning. 
If you lived in North Korea or China today, would you follow Jesus? Would you be one of the ones exiled to a re-education center or to prison? Would you? It would mean if you chose Christ, it would mean that your children would suffer in the same way you do. Be seriously deprived of what would be available if you did not follow Jesus. The Antichrist is marked as a governmental ruler. The Antichrist is marked by blasphemy. The Antichrist will be marked by demand for absolute allegiance and obedience. Fourthly, the Antichrist will always be marked with hatred for God's people. The Antichrist is constantly at war with God's people. Look at verse 7. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Revelation 12, 17 then. Then the, ag, the dragon became furious with the woman. Who's the woman? The people of God. And went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's what he's been doing. He's been fulfilling that verse for the last 2,000 years. Verse 17 of Revelation 12. Making war against the church and her offspring. This morning, I'm glad we're coming to the Lord's table. You're marked. All of us are marked by baptism. In the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. We're marked by baptism as a lover of Christ. We're marked by baptism as a child of our Heavenly Father. Any of the Antichrist that has been, or the consummate Antichrist that is coming, has and will demand you renounce that you curse your baptism and that you curse this table. They'll demand that you drag this table through the sewer. On that day, that day comes here. That's been done. This has been done. Read this. Read the suffering of Christians in Russia, in China, South Korea. They're made to curse the name of Christ, to curse the day of their baptism, to curse the table, to do awful, unmentionable things to the table. I close with this. I could. Some of you've heard this. It was a moment in my life that I'll never forget. Dr. Philip Edgecombe Hughes was one of the most brilliant New Testament scholars of the 20th century. He died in 1990. In 1966. 67, he was a visiting professor at Columbia Seminary. Columbia Seminary, as you've heard me speak, it was a seminary I attended in the old Southern Presbyterian Church, was very, very liberal. The professors, in many ways, denied the Gospels. And I want to take them all. I don't have this written down, but I'm going to say it because there's got to be someone here that I can speak to about this. 
Here Columbia Seminary was had been at one time a great seminary, conservative seminary, Bible-believing seminary with great men teaching. But it had fallen over the years and over the decades. And I had teachers that didn't believe in the deity of Christ, didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ, didn't believe in the miracles of Christ. But Philip Edgecombe Hughes came there. I met him the first day I was on campus. He was walk, out walking his bird dog. And he was this sophisticated, very erudite Englishman. And he, he always was dressed well. And that day he had on an, an overcoat, a camel hair overcoat. He's walking his bird dog. How did he get there? I can tell you how he got there. Somebody, some conservative... Some conservative with some money, some Bible-believing Presbyterian in the South that had some money, had gone to Columbia Seminary and said, I want to pay for a professor to come. I want to pay for Philip Edgecombe Hughes or Stuart Barton Babbage to come and teach on Columbia's campus. Well, the seminary wanted the money. So what they did was they would allow that visiting professor to come for a year, two years. And they would be put off on the side. They could teach electives, but never part of the main curriculum. They'd teach electives. Well, I took every course that Philip Edgecombe Hughes taught. But I want to say to you today, if you have that opportunity, do it. Do it. He, He changed me. He became a mentor for me. He was a brilliant, brilliant man, a scholar, scholar, a quiet genius. He was regarded worldwide for his ability and knowledge and languages and theology in the New Testament. The Lord used him as a mentor in my life at a crucial time. Well, before my senior year, he had left Columbia and gone to teach at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. During December of my senior year, that December, I received a call from Dr. Hughes. He said, I'm coming through Atlanta. He was going somewhere to speak. I've forgotten where. He said, I happen to be landing. I've got two hours in Atlanta. And and said, why don't you come to the airport and I'll take you to dinner. I'll take you to lunch. Well, it's not every day that someone calls you. I mean, that was a command appearance. If I'd had an appointment with the Queen of England or the President of the United States, I would have canceled it at that point to be with Hughes. I don't know why I did it to this day. I don't know. But he had been my mentor, and he had become a friend. So I went to the airport. We had lunch together. And after lunch, this is when you had the freedom of just walking through the whole airport. Remember those days? And you could walk the person to the gate and see them. We walked to the gate and said our goodbyes. And I was watching, just like looking here down those steps, I was watching Dr. Hughes in that camel hair overcoat, coat, shirt, tie, and he was walking away. I didn't know he was much older. I didn't know if or when I would see him again. And suddenly, he turned around and started like marching, walking straight back to me very quickly. This man was an introvert. He was very quiet. He didn't do things like this. And he got right up this close to me. And he said this. John, Satan, and all of his evil forces 
are coming for you. You get ready for the battle. Now, I didn't know it at that time. But at that very time, he was writing a commentary on Revelation. And I'm sure that he was thinking about Revelation 13. I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying to his church. I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying to me and saying to you and saying to Christ's covenant. Satan and all of his evil forces are coming for you. You get ready for the battle. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the table is most appropriate. Hymn number 254. Alas, and did my Savior bleed.